Coming up on Chopper's Politics. The idea that now would be a sensible time in which to contemplate changing prime minister, although that would be in the national interest, seems to me to be for the birds. Hello and welcome to Chopper's Politics. I'm Christopher Hope, the Telegraph's Associate Editor for Politics. Well, there's never been a hangover like it. After nine minutes in a room in Downing Street with a birthday cake kept in a Tupperware box, Boris Johnson has been left some months later with a £50 fine and a criminal sanction from the Met Police, which is unprecedented for a sitting Prime Minister. And there may well be more to come. Yes, this week, the beginning of the end of the Partygate scandal started. Do keep up at the back. But where will it leave the Prime Minister? More on that later. But first, across the country, thousands of British families are trying to take in Ukrainian refugees with varying success. But one family which has managed to take in Ukrainians into their home this week are the Jenricks. And joining me now is one of their number, Robert Jenrick, who happens to be the MP for Newark. Robert Jenrick, former Secretary of Housing, Communities, Local Government, of course, MP for Newark. Thank you for joining us today on Shoppers Politics. Great to have you on. Good to be back, Chris. We're talking down the line, of course, because Parliament's in, in recess. But you've been very busy, haven't you? Well, yes, my family have just taken in a Ukrainian refugee family and we drove to Stansted Airport in the middle of the night on uh, Monday to pick them up and uh, welcome them to the UK. And so they're now safely ensconced in Southwell in Nottinghamshire and we're getting to know them and they're getting to know us. And it's obviously very early days, but so far it's for us, it's been very rewarding to see them feeling safe at last after a very traumatic experience and beginning to stabilise and and rebuild their lives, I hope. And who are they and what are their ages? So uh, we're fortunate to have uh, Maria, who is uh, my age, she's just 40, and her two children, an 11-year-old called Christina and a 15-year-old called Bowden. Their dad, common with most Ukrainian families, of course, is remaining in the country, supporting the war effort. But um, they've come to the UK and I don't know how long they'll be here. I think they would like to return, obviously, when they're able to do so. But we we want to support them for as long as they need to be. And where are they living? Do you have a spare room or do you have a building near your home or where where are they staying? They're they're in our house. So it it will be a bit busy uh, because we've got three children and two dogs. (laughs) But we had a Zoom call with them after we'd connected and were completely upfront about that and they they were very happy to take us on if you like and uh, it seems to be working well so far i mean it has been a very difficult experience for them even the experience of coming here was traumatic they spent seven hours queuing at the polish border before they were able to finally leave ukraine catch the flight to the uk and the experiences which they've had and their relatives have had in different parts of the country over the last two or three months are you know are are really harrowing and if we like thousands of other families across the country can help in a small way to Mm. give another family some comfort then i think that's a good thing and it, it, it does i have to say feel very rewarding because it's such a tangible way to help people 
many people give generously of their time and donate to charity, this is a very tangible way to reach out and help another family. And I've got nothing but admiration for other people across the country who are doing the same. We think you're the first MP to take in a Ukrainian family through the official scheme. That's right, isn't it? I believe so. There are many MPs who are interested in doing this and a number yeah. of friends, former ministers. I should say we had Victor Apprentice uh, on this programme with Vika, who came through a visitor's visa, not the Ukrainian family scheme. That's right. I mean, look, it, it, truth be told, it has been a bumpy start to the scheme. It's taken too long to get visas. For us, it took about three weeks to get all three visas approved. And so there are people who are frustrated. It has tested the patience of sponsors and, more importantly, of the families and individuals themselves. But having been involved in some schemes that are not dissimilar to this in the past, like the Hong Kong scheme, Syrian scheme, Afghan scheme, as a Ministry of Community Secretary, I know that. But I, I do think that we will get over those bumps. We are getting over them now. The Home Office do seem to be processing applications much faster and that we will look back on this with pride as a country, because, as I say, it is a wonderful thing to think that in each one of these cases, we're bringing a family very similar to those of our own out of a very dangerous and distressing situation into our own country. The other thing I would say, just from our family's perspective, and I say it is only early days, but it is quite a humbling experience because it's a constant reminder of how fortunate we are to live in this country, to have the privileges that we do. And I think that for me, my wife and our kids, it will make us you know, a little bit less selfish and a bit more grateful for what we all have. A lot of listeners might be thinking this, but did you pull any strings to speed up the process? Because there's lots of frustration. We've had Prude Leith writing The Telegraph talking about how she has a log cabin, two bedrooms, underfloor heating and all the mod cons, but they can't get any refugees into it. And I wondered whether you used your high office to make sure that you got to the front of the queue. No, I didn't. I did follow up, as I have been for dozens of constituents with the Home Office to find out what's going on with the application, but I don't think in any way mine was fast-tracked. I would just say that, because there has been some criticism of the design of the scheme, the idea that we as individuals reach out to people in Ukraine rather than there being an intermediary, a matching service provided by government like the United Nations or the Polish authorities. I do actually think that we've gone down the right track with this scheme because the state shouldn't always be the one stepping in and sorting things out. There is a role for individuals, for churches, for synagogues, for community groups in society and it wasn't actually that difficult in our experience to find a Ukrainian family in need once we put our minds to it. How, how did you find them, Robert? How did you come across them? We thought about it, initially didn't know what, what way to turn, but a friend of ours had already found a Ukrainian family and we asked them if they knew someone else and they did and that's how we got this family. But at the same time, we asked a lady who works in a cafe who is Ukrainian, who we know, and she suggested someone uh, who we later connected with a different family. And we knew someone who had once worked in Ukraine and reached out to them. They in turn also came forward with people who we've managed to settle through mutual friends. So I think if you put your mind to it, it isn't actually that difficult. And I, as I say, it feels to me as if there are limits to the role of the state. And as a country, we have so much to offer when individuals, civic society come together.
Of course, when you uh, when in the cabinet, you had a role in communities and, and the issue of extremism. One of the defences the Home Office offer up with the reasons why they are these checks is they're worried about extremists coming in. So, for example, you can't have family applications. You have to have individual applications. The applications are in English, not Ukrainian. This kind of thing is, is frustrating for some of the families. But do you understand why those strings need to be attached to the process to protect us all? Or was that over the top? Because you're dealing with families and old people and vulnerable people, aren't you? So why are they in terms of extremism is the point? Well, I think there are two sides to that. Firstly, I do think the process has been overly bureaucratic and I think the Home Office often falls into this trap. There were simple things that we could and should have done from the outset, like having the form in Ukrainian, for example, and I'm not sure that whether you need to be doing checks on minors who are extremely unlikely to be threats to this country. But the second point, I think that Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, is absolutely right that when we welcome people to this country, we should be doing basic security checks on them because no one would thank the government in our rush to support those in need if we inadvertently allowed in people who mean to do us harm. And I'm afraid there are those people in the world. You know, the world is a darker place than we like to think. We have pervasive issues in this country already with extremism, Islamist extremism, and we saw this week the verdict and the sentencing of the murder of Sir David Amos, for example, who was a proponent of a violent Islamist extremist ideology. So these individuals exist in our own country and some wish to come to this country. And it's right that we take the advice of the security services and put in place sensible but robust checks, even on schemes like this. But of course, those checks need to be done quickly. And in this case, I'm afraid it has taken too long. And the difference would say Ireland is there in the Schengen zone and then you can move freely within the EU anyway. Are you being paid £300 a month for your hotel, I should say, your house? We haven't been paid anything so far. I mean, I think we will either not accept that money or we will give it to the family, but uh, we haven't... Mm. We haven't decided. And, 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 they, and they want to go home, don't they? It's a temporary measure. Is that, that right, Robert? I mean, you don't know how long they're staying for. Yeah, I think, it, you know, individual circumstances will vary. But my impression is that the vast majority of, of these families will want to return to Ukraine. As I say, in most cases, the adult males are not coming because they're part of the war effort back home. And, you know, these are people who love their country are extremely distressed that it's been invaded and you know subjected to this aggression from Russia. They want to return and to help to rebuild and uh, restore their country. What we can do is provide temporary respite. And so for, for families who are interested in this, and I would, I would highly recommend it, you view this as a significant commitment, but ultimately a time-limited one, because most of these families will want to, to get back to Ukraine as quickly as they can. How did you feel when you saw the family arriving in the wee small hours at Stansted Airport? Was it an emotional moment? We did find it emotional because this is a family that looks just like ours. They're children of not dissimilar ages to ours and a mother who's left her husband back home and made this extraordinary decision, which no one would do lightly, to leave home and, and come to another country in order to protect her children. And... It was quite emotional. I have to say they've been absolutely lovely to us and so we've, we've enjoyed it so far. Now, Robert Jenrick, I've got to ask you about Partygate. We hear this week, of course, how Boris Johnson, his wife Carrie and the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, have all three been given a criminal sanction for a party in 10 Downing Street, a nine-minute event by all accounts. They are now have a criminal sanction. I mean, do you think your leader, Boris Johnson, should be your leader 
at the next election. Yes, I do. And I think he will be. This is a serious situation uh, and nobody should diminish or trivialise it because many people are understandably very angry. There are thousands of my constituents, millions of people across the country who made very significant sacrifices during that period and feel as if the sacrifices that they were making were not being followed in the highest places in government. However, thinking back to my own time during the lockdown and the experience I had of working with the Prime Minister, the idea that he was somehow distracted by socialising during that period seems absurd. I was speaking to the Prime Minister and attending meetings, sometimes in person, mostly remotely with him, almost every day, and he was working flat out to steer the country through an unprecedented situation. He's someone who had suffered from COVID himself, almost died, made a, in some respects, miraculous recovery, returned to work. He was taking his position as Prime Minister with the seriousness that you would expect. So I cannot agree with the argument that he was someone who was not behaving with the seriousness that you would expect in that office at that time. I also think that the broader context today is very clear. We are in a European war. The most serious situation that our continent has been in for decades, potentially since the end of the Second World War, the Prime Minister is not just involved in that conflict, he is objectively leading and coordinating the Western response to it. Don't take my word for that, take the word of President Zelensky, who has consistently praised Boris Johnson's activity in response. The idea that now would be a sensible time in which to contemplate changing Prime Minister, although that would be in the national interest, seems to me to be for the birds. We're also entering into a deepening economic crisis in which individuals and businesses right across the country are hurting and will be even more so, I think, in the months to come. And that requires stable and strong leadership. And that is what you have. <laughs> We've heard that expression before in the 2017 election. His defence is he felt he was following the rules at the time. And I've got to ask you, you know, during the lockdown, you were accused of breaking the rules by taking food to your parents' house. We're not going to go over that again. But do you have any sympathy towards him? Because the rules were complicated. You're trying to do the best by your family in your case. And he's trying to, you know, he's trying to do his best, I suppose, in office. Do you feel that the rules were over, over complex? Well, I do have sympathy because I, I don't think that anyone, certainly not the Prime Minister, would set out to purposefully break the rules. And certainly on the incident that we're discussing today, I don't think there's any sense in which the Prime Minister deliberately broke the rules. For what I know of that incident, he came to a meeting expecting it to be a business meeting, if you like, and there was then this gathering to celebrate his birthday that lasted several minutes, maybe less than 10 minutes. It's a relatively minor infringement. I do think that a broader point, which was that some of the rules were too complex and there were individuals and businesses that were unnecessarily harmed by those. Within government, I tried to constantly push back against small injustices that I could see as communities and local government sector, where that was the, the closure of parks that didn't make any sense to me, or preventing people from singing in churches or conducting funerals in a 
compassionate and sensitive way where the rules were not correct. You know, they, they were not sensible and they were not compassionate. We, we generally got to the right place, but it took too long in those cases. You're a father, as we've discussed, and do you worry about the way that we're talking about our prime minister has got around the rules or didn't follow the rules? And do you think that sets a difficult example for children? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that everybody in life has a responsibility to lead by example, either within their family, within their community, within their business, and certainly those of us who make the decision to go into public life. But I don't think you can draw a comparison that the activities of the prime minister are going to change the behaviour of children in the in years to come. And there are many, I think, very admirable things that the prime minister has and is doing, not least his role in, in Ukraine. And I certainly watch the news every night with, with my children and amidst the horrors of that tragedy, there is a degree of pride at the way in which this country has led Europe, if not the world. And I think that would not be happening if it wasn't for, for Boris Johnson. And so I'm grateful that he's our prime minister right now. And you're looking forward to an Easter Sunday lunch with your new family? Yes, I hope so. We're going to enjoy getting to know each other and having a, a peaceful Easter. This is the weekend for families and communities to, to get together. And I'll certainly be looking forward to doing it with my new extended family. Well, Robert Jenrick, former cabinet minister, MP for Newark, who's brilliantly taken on a family from Ukraine this Easter. Thank you for joining us today on Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Robert Jenrick there. Now, sticking with Partygate, this week, the first minister resigned in the wake of a scandal, with Lord Wilson saying he couldn't carry on as justice minister after Boris Johnson was fined for an illegal party during lockdown. And that might be just the start of it. But what do voters think? Should Boris Johnson resign now he's received a criminal sanction as prime minister? And what will be the impact, if any, on the local elections in England and Wales in three weeks' time? Well, with me now to provide some of the answers is Martin Baxter, founder of Polster Electoral Calculus. Welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Now, you've been polling, haven't you, most recently about Resignation Watch. Have you found a degree of concern amongst um, voters after we see these fines coming through for our, our leaders? over parties well yes our friends at find out now have run a poll over the last couple of days after the the fines were announced asking people if they thought that whether both boris johnson and rishi sunak should resign or or neither or one or the other we found similar to other polls who've been going on that 52 percent of the british public overall think that boris johnson should resign because of party gate and that's obviously quite a high figure but it breaks down as a very partisan uh, decomposition that lots of Labour and Lib Dem voters think that he should resign, but uh, much fewer Conservative voters. Only 26% of Conservative voters, those who voted Conservative last election, think Boris Johnson should resign. Only 21% think both he and Rishi Sunak should resign. So although there's a lot of uh, heat and noise on the issue, it is quite a partisan one. You've done some research, haven't you, last week before the fines were announced by the Met Police, looking forward into the local elections in England and Wales, which take place in three weeks' time. What have you found? Yeah, so who'd have thought that local elections would be so exciting? (laughs) But this year, they certainly are, because it's going to be part of how 
Conservative backbenchers assess how well Boris Johnson's doing, that if the Conservatives do badly at the local elections, that will increase the number of people writing letters to Graham Brady, perhaps. And if they do not so badly, then that will take the pressure off. And our figures are really interesting. So there's about 5,000, 6,000 councillors up for election. We think overall Labour will gain about 800 councillors and about 20 councils. Wow. The Conservatives will lose 800 councillors, but may not lose more than a handful of councils. And they might even gain one or two councils around the country. And on the whole, that for the Conservatives is not as bad as it might have been. That isn't a kind of cataclysmic catastrophe. It's a reverse, but under the current circumstances, a result like that is probably going to be fairly welcome news to Boris Johnson. And Sir Graham Brady is not going to need to sharpen his letter opener ready for a lot of envelopes. But it is also good news for Labour and for Keir Starmer particularly, because ever since Keir Starmer has been elected, Labour have not actually had any electoral gains. They've had various opportunities in by-elections and local elections, and they haven't made gains. So we are thinking they are going to be making some gains. That's going to be good for Keir Starmer as well and stabilise his position. But I think the numbers for us all to write down on a little post-it note and keep for three weeks to check are the 800 seats. If Labour are gaining more than 800 seats, then they're doing better than expected. Maybe Partygate is cutting through and getting Conservatives either to stay at home or to switch party. If they don't do quite as well as that, then that's less good news and even better news for the Conservatives. But that's our benchmark prediction that we can kind of measure people's success relative to that 800 number. Is it more or less than 800 seats changing hands? 800 losses in councillors is quite a lot um, to me. But are you saying that in, in general terms, when you take into account a sitting Tory government, this is acceptable? I think for, you know, very much midterm in the current difficult political circumstances, it's not a horrible result. I mean, it's not good for the Conservatives, but it's not horrible. Particularly if you look at the total of councils, Labour winning 20 councils is good for them. That's mostly taking them from councils where there's no overall control at the moment. The Conservatives, we don't think will be losing very many actually Conservative councils that they, they lose control of. Obviously, if they do lose control of many councils, then that will be worse than predicted. That'll have an impact on Boris Johnson's future. Many are saying that if it's a very, very bad, they say over a thousand losses for the Tory party, that could trigger resignations from the government, which could in turn have a bearing on Boris Johnson's leadership. Yes, I think if we talk Turkey, Chris, the Conservative Parliamentary Party, the thing that attracts them to Boris Johnson is his election winning. And if he keeps looking like an election winner or partial winner, then they will keep liking him. And if he stops looking like that, then all bets are off. You don't really hear much of that, do you, from Twitter and other places? I mean, people really don't like him, do they? But I think the problem... I think Labour has, is they rarely land a blow on him. And I think all, all the blows we're seeing that the Tory party and the Tory government under Johnson have seen over the past two years have been mainly self-inflicted. That's true. Twitter, famously, is not representative of the nation at all. It doesn't poll like we poll and make sure it's got you know a good balance of the population. And Twitter predicted both of the last two Jeremy Corbyn victories. <laughs> for sure. the, uh, the general elections. <laughs> yes, uh, which, of course, didn't happen. But your, your other point is well made, that the Conservatives have been running into trouble. But equally, they've been in power since 2010. That's 12 years. Governments pick up kind of barnacles on the hull of scandals and difficulties and events that cause difficulty for them. The job of the opposition really is to look competent and a realistic candidate for number 10, not drop the ball 
and be ready to ride the wave of dissatisfaction with whatever the incumbent is, but also provide a little bit of enthusiasm and positive reason to for them to vote for them. And it's maybe that's what's missing, the idea of a vision. Yeah, so I think that, that's the other test that the local elections will have, that if we can cast our mind back to Tony Blair, he generated a lot of enthusiasm at the time. People were encouraged to vote for him. Keir Starmer has not yet shown that. There's not yet been electoral victories where there's been a proven enthusiasm by the British public to get Labour in and get the Conservatives out. The local elections might show that, but we'll have to wait and see. You haven't really mentioned the Liberal Democrats. I'm looking here at your graphs, and we'll put a link to your research in the show notes to this episode. You're forecasting a single gain of councils for Liberal Democrats, and in fact, a fall in councillors by 13. Now, I know a lot of Tories are worried about the impact of the Lib Dems in the southwest and the south of England, particularly after the Cheshire and Amish and by-election defeat last year, it seems to me that you're forecasting the Lib Dems will not make the ground they want to make at these local elections. Yes, nothing terribly exciting for them. There's this new unitary authority in Somerset that they might well take, which is counted as a game because it, it didn't exist before. And as you say, overall, total number of councillors, they're roughly flat. So it's a very small deviation from the, about the 450 they have at the moment. And that reflects what's happening at the national level as well, that the Lib Dems are polling for Westminster elections, a little bit lower than they were even in 2019. So they're not getting enthusiasm at the moment either. It could be said, actually, across the whole three major parties that enthusiasm is in short supply amongst all their supporters. Obviously, there's potential there for people to get more enthusiastic about them as we get to the next general election, but it's not showing in the numbers at the moment. The headline from the forecast for local elections, as things stand, before the fines were were issued by Scotland Yard, was a swing of 5% to Labour away from the Conservatives. Have you worked out what that might mean in a general election? I have, roughly. So on a general election, looking at kind of all the evidence and the, the polls on the general elections, Labour would be 15 seats short of a majority. So we'd probably be looking at a Labour minority government that might be supported by the Lib Dems if they're lucky, but it would probably be more likely to need SNP support. And obviously, the price of that SNP support would probably be a second independence referendum. Oh, my word. Here we go again. Oh, yes. And that's been fairly stable for the last couple of months. So that is the central forecast at the moment and is quite a likely outcome. So a Labour minority government is currently where we are. But remember, we are midterm. Things may well change in the next two years. Politics have been changing quite quickly in the last two years. So we will all have to wait and see. But it is literally true that anything could happen in the next general election. Well, Martin Baxter, can we have you on again? You're so good. We'll get you on before the local election to find out whether you think the fines have changed anything. But it's great to have you on once again. Martin Baxter, the founder and director of Electoral Calculus. And I say the findings of this research you've done for the podcast will be in the show notes to this episode. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Martin Baxter there. Right, do stay with us. In just one moment, we'll be finding out what it's like to go from reporting dull House of Commons committees to being on the ground reporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Right after this. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London, 
and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. Now, if you're a Telegraph reader, which I certainly hope you are, you'll be familiar with the reporting of Danielle Sheridan, a political correspondent of the Telegraph who normally works with me in our office in Westminster. But in recent weeks, she has swapped the corridors of power for a war zone with regular dispatches on our front page from Ukraine. So I thought I'd catch up with her in a rare down moment to find out about the extraordinary scenes she has borne witness to. Danielle Sheridan, our political correspondent and defence correspondent, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Thank you for having me, Chopper. Now, you're a lobby journalist. What are you doing in Ukraine? Well, as you know, I also cover defence. So I think it was inevitable that if a war ever happened, it would be something I would report on because of the nature of defence reporting, which is the military, albeit I tend to just write about the British military I think that because of what's going on between Ukraine and Russia is so massive, it had to be covered from my perspective. I couldn't only go out there if it was British troops fighting this war. I needed to go out and cover it regardless of how involved Brits actually are. And obviously we are heavily involved in the sense that Boris Johnson has made sure that we are supplying kit and weaponry to the Ukrainians and we're bolstering the Eastern Front. We just don't have boots on the ground currently. The the reporting you've done out there has been completely marvellous. You're working there with one of our photographers, Paul Grover. How have you found it? I mean, it's so different, isn't it, to what you normally deal with when you work in the House of Commons? It reminds me a little bit of what it was like to be a general reporter going out, door knocking, talking to locals on the ground, trying to work a story from the ground up, really. If you remember, I had a story about a woman who had a grave dug in her back garden. That came about because I literally knocked on someone's door and we had a chat and then he referenced one of the atrocities that had happened in the village being that this grave had been dug in a woman's garden and that is quite similar to how I learned the trade of journalism which was just being on the road and door knocking. And we'll put links to your work in the show notes to this episode and that interview you had with Tetiana was on the front page last week of the Telegraph. You've seen her again recently, how is she? Oh so much better. The thing is I think you just asked me what's it been like. It's been really harrowing and emotionally draining because I've come into this war not at a time when I'm seeing missiles and shooting and tanks being blown up and torched. I've come into it with the aftermath, all the trauma that people, civilians, have gone through. And so with regard to Tetiana, I was asking her about an awful thing that had happened to her and her community 
and she got very distressed when we were having this conversation and so for me I just wanted to go back and see if she was okay because I'm a British journalist I turned up on her doorstep and I've just got her to bear her soul. How does that feel because these people have been through a lot and you're asking them to repeat it aren't you? so readers in Britain can can learn what's going on. And, and your reporting and your of your colleagues out there is so important because it keeps Ukraine in the news. It keeps it at the forefront of politicians' work here in, in London. Do you ever feel, though, that I shouldn't be asking these questions? I'm, I'm, you know, this person is upset. Does she mind me doing this? Do you ever ha- have pause for thought? Yes. I mean, today I went to a funeral of someone this morning when I woke up I didn't even know the name of the girl who I saw put into the ground and I had her mother sobbing on my shoulder and none of the family were there because the evacuation effort means everyone's splintered and they're telling me all this really horrific stuff that they've been informed by the authorities happened to their daughter that these are war crimes that are being committed by Russian soldiers. And if we don't talk and ask the difficult questions, then they won't be held accountable and people won't know the atrocities that they've been doing. You know, you're, you're a journalist, that there is a reason why we do this. It, we don't do it for the pure fun of it. We do it because we think it's important that the world knows that these crimes are being committed. Absolutely. Have you seen any elements of hope in what you're doing, Danielle, out there? It is obviously tragic, appalling. You're dealing daily with suffering. Are there elements of humanity which have given you some hope? When I last summer was writing about the drawdown in Afghanistan, I remember a soldier saying to me that at the Baron Hotel, he saw the best and worst in humanity. And I always found that such a paradox. And it's only now me being in a war zone that I have seen that. So I have gone to a woman's back garden and seen a mass grave that was dug by Russian soldiers who threatened to put her in it. And she was inconsolable. And I've returned a few days later and had that same woman saying to me, do you know what? I will rebuild and it will be even better than it was ever before. And in a neighbouring town, I've seen a man whose entire home is rubble. And he said to me that everything he ever earned, every single penny he put into that house, it was his pride and joy. It was where he raised his family. He wanted to leave something to his grandchildren. It was there, you know, where they came every summer, filled with memories. And now there is nothing. And yet he was saying, it's OK, we will bring our house back to life in some way. And there's just this like residing resilience I'm seeing among people in the most desperate circumstances and even when I started reporting in Ukraine I was based in Lviv for a week and the amount of displaced citizens was colossal Lviv's in the west of the country so it seemed very safe for people to travel to this family had lost everything and they had two children and their older son was in his 20s but he's in a dangerous area fighting They hadn't spoken to him in days. They were beside themselves with worry, but it was their daughter's ninth birthday. And so they were determined to make it special. And this family who've lost everything, they fled their hometown because it was invaded by the Russians. 
who are now living in this tiny room in a refugee centre still managed to throw their daughter a little birthday party with cake and they got her some presents and balloons. And it's just, like I said, the strength of the Ukrainian people, that is what shows you the best in humanity alongside the worst, which is also in another breath, a different family are telling you that everyone that they love has been killed. And how do you keep your emotions out of this? How do you hold yourself together? Sometimes I haven't. Sometimes when someone's just been crying so much, I got tearful and had to kind of like take a breath and compose myself because it's hard, isn't it, when someone's telling you a really emotional story to not be affected by it. And today, today was bloody hard. Stop. Danny, don't take a break. Yeah, two seconds. Okay. Sorry. No, it's fine. I'm fine. It was just very sad. This girl was tortured. The mum was hugging me loads when I was saying bye to her and she was like stroking my hair and it made me think, you know, like, was there some form of comfort, her stroking my hair? Oh, it was just really sad. I know. Okay, I'm good. I mean, how do you think that this war will end? The thing is, even before the invasion began, I remember saying, I don't see how the Ukrainian military can withstand the Russians because their military is so massive, it will swamp the Ukrainians. And they haven't succeeded in doing that. And they didn't take Kiev like they wanted to. But I think that Russians operate by a playbook. And we saw what they did in Syria. And we saw that they fight wars of attrition. And when they're getting desperate, they bring in chemical weapons. And I can only assume that that is how they are going to play this one. And I think that they won't stop until they succeed in taking the the Donbass region. Well, Daniel Sheridan, our political correspondent sometimes, but currently a war correspondent in Ukraine. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics and please stay safe and we'll put a link to all of your brilliant reporting in the show notes to this episode. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Danny Sheridan there. And to keep across Danny's fantastic and brave reporting from Ukraine and to support The Telegraph's superb journalism, want to become a Telegraph subscriber. Please go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash chopper for your first month's subscription completely free of charge. Subscribers are vital in making important reporting like Danielle's from Ukraine happen. Please do support our work. Thank you to my guests this week, the Right Honourable Robert Jenrick MP, Martin Baxter, and The Telegraph's own Danielle Sheridan. Thank you to my brilliant team of producers, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampitt, and of course, Theodora Luludis. And as ever, thank you to you for listening. Please do sign up for my regular Chopper's Politics newsletter for daily insights in what's happening in Westminster, straight into your inbox every weekday lunchtime. And the link to sign up will be in the show notes to this episode. And please do be sure to check out my weekly Peterborough Diary column every Friday evening at 7pm on The Telegraph's website and in Saturday's newspaper. And as always, if you can, please do buy a copy of The Daily Telegraph. I know you won't regret it. 
Until next time, though, cheerio. 